0: I find it difficult sometimes to trust God in the circumstances of life. I don't know why it's so difficult. It should be pretty easy. All throughout the Scripture, we see God's faithfulness time and time and time again, and yet we doubt Him. We wonder, what is He doing? Where is He at? And we, as a people, in fact, um, there was a researcher did some interesting statistics on um, churches, not, well, I'm professing Christians and young people in our country, uh, 20-somethings, millennials. And what he found is um, he categorized them. He had a whole criteria of what he was looking for. when we talk about biblical worldviews, this is why I said most of us don't have a biblical worldview. And what he determined was that we, as a people, we believe in, Christians are really not Christians necessarily, but according, according to their worldview and the nuances of their beliefs, they are Therapeutic, moralistic deists. And I would add to that narcissistic on that. I think that would be another good one to put on there. Um, hello, selfie generation. Um, therapeutic, moralistic deists. Therapeutic moral... What does that mean? It means that we look to God for how He can help us. How could the biggest part of every bookstore is the self-help area, and the Christian bookstore is no different. Tons of books on how to help yourself... How to do this how to do that how to we're all looking for therapy right we're looking for some way because we're victims and we live in a bad world the society and so there's obviously the way I am is not because of myself it's because of other people and so I got to figure out a way to overcome all of the things that I have been victimized by in this world and so we none of us are responsible for our own behavior it's always somebody else's fault right um, we saw that played out multiple times this week in, in national news victimization But therapeutic, moralistic, we're all trying to do better. I'm going to do better. I'm going to do, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to do, and then deistic. What does that mean? Deistic. Deistic means a deist, me, is a person that believes that God made everything, but then he kind of like made the clock, wound it up, and then put it on the table, and then he steps back and he watches it all happen. There's another false teaching that is crept in to um, a lot of places called open theism, Open theist you are never going to hear somebody, I'm an open theist, or people talk about that, but it's in the meaning of an open theist is somebody that would say, kind of like a deist, that God created the world, made everything, and he has a general template of what he's trying to accomplish, and he has kind of a general way he wants to go with things, but, but overall, you really determine a lot of where things land, and somehow God tries to work with our humanity and our flesh and our will, and try to figure out some way to kind of work out his plan, or whatever, and he's like this God working with Plato, trying to make it fit somehow, and he'll somehow figure it out. But when God looks in the future, he doesn't see his perfect plan. He sees openness, and he's trying to figure out a way to bring this thing to conclusion. That is heresy. It's Wrong. And it gives us no hope. And I want you to understand that when you feel like God has abandoned you, when you feel like you don't know what God is doing, and you feel like you don't know how God's going to work out these circumstances this situation when you when you feel like everything's closing in and you don't see what God is doing a and b you don't feel his presence he is not absent God's ability to work and God's sovereign plan and God's premise is not built upon your perception and understanding of what he's doing or your esoteric, subjective feeling of his presence. God doesn't have to manifest his feeling of his presence to you to do anything. And so we are way messed up because we determine reality based upon what we feel and what we see. And it's all about, I just don't feel in my heart of hearts that this is right. I don't feel in my heart of hearts that God is showing up, or I don't feel in my heart of hearts that whatever. It doesn't really matter what we feel. And it doesn't really matter what we see we need to trust God by faith, and the Bible's full of those kinds of examples of people that trusted God by faith. In fact, Hebrews 11 has a whole list of them, and that is what God has called us to. So I want you to understand, as we go through Exodus, there's a quote by um, A.W. Tozer, and, and he has a book called Knowledge of the Holy that's just a absolute must-read, and then Pursuit of God. Uh, A.W. Tozer is uh, with the Lord. He Died years ago, um, but incredible man of God, and and two books that just need to be on your reading list at some point in your life is Pursuit of God and the Knowledge of the Holy, and Knowledge of the Holy gets into the Attributes of God, and uh, beautiful, incredible, mind-blowing book. When you read that, you go, okay, God, I've got God in a little box, and you realize God is way beyond our boxes um, in how powerful and mighty he is. But he says in Knowledge of the Holy, in a chapter on the faithfulness of God. He says, for the scriptures not only teach truth, but they show us its uses for all mankind. The word of God not only teaches us the truth, but it shows us its uses for all of mankind. In other words, it shows us how it helps us, how it's practical, how how we need it. Then he goes on to say, the inspired writers were men of like passion with us, dwelling in the midst of of life in other words they had the same passions and worries and feelings and struggles as we do and they lived in real time in a real place in the real world that we live in the circumstances might be different Um, some of the things some of the technology might be different but the but the circumstances of life and the challenges they faced were no different than what we experienced they were real people living in real time dealing with real issues in life And what they learned about God became to them, this is is the beautiful part, what they learned about God became to them a sword, a shield, a hammer. It became their life motivation, their good hope, and their confident expectation. Let me read that statement for you again. What they learned about God became to them a sword, a shield a hammer, it became their life motivation, their good hope, their confident expectation. From the objective facts of theology, their hearts made how many thousands joyous deductions and personal applications from God's word. When you're looking for hope, when you're looking for peace, when you're looking for understanding, when you're looking for... You're, you're not going to find it anywhere other than ultimately Christ, number one. And number two, His Word. His Word. And when we cut ourselves off from the Word of God, we become anemic. We become hopeless. We become deistic. Okay, We become moralistic. We, we cease to have a shield and a weapon and a hammer and a, a sword... Dealing with life's challenges. And so when we go to the book of Exodus this morning, I want you to understand that, that God is giving us something that is an incredible narrative story of how he's worked real time, real history. But nonetheless, it is all of these things that we've just talked about that Tozer states, God is faithful. God is faithful. In fact, Jesus one day in the second coming is going to come riding in a horse and written on him are going to be the names or the words faithful and true faithful and true and so that is the god that delivered his people in exodus exodus chapter one covers four centuries you're talking about 430 years of the people of god dwelling in some of the darkest times and so we jump off in chapter one you're going this is like uh seatbelts on lean back in your chair because i don't want you to get your neck hurt when we're because we're going to be going forward so fast um in world history here These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and his brothers And all the generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king from over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens they built for pharaoh store cities like pithom and ramses but the more they oppressed they were oppressed the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad the egyptians were in dread of the people of israel so they ruthlessly made people of Israel, the people of Israel, work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field, and in their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah, when, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill it, but if it is a daughter, you shall, um, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. In other words, Pharaoh saying, Why have you disobeyed my direct orders to you? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dwelt well with God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, God gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. That's chapter one. Now, what's going on in this passage of scripture? A couple things to note to you. First, verse 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. And this is just a quick little side note, a little bonus, but um the Hebrew title for this book uh, is the first word or first couple words of of the book. That's how that's how the Hebrew scriptures the books are referenced. So, it's by the the first phrase. Um our title for the book Exodus comes from the the thematic theme of the book they they exited egypt so it's called the exodus but it's the first words of this book are and these are the names and these are the names that's how it begins these are the names of the sons of israel your bible will say these are the names probably but in hebrew it's and these are the names which is interesting because uh that's not only the, the beginning of this book it's also the way that Exodus starts leviticus starts this way numbers starts with an and joshua starts with an and judges starts with an and ruth starts with an and first second samuel first second kings ezra and esther all of them start with an and, and so your english majors that's going to bother you a little bit you don't start a sentence much less the whole book with the word and but they they do what they want this is god's language so uh w- what's the point there just simple point is that this is an ongoing story it's an ongoing story it's not separate books i mean there are separate books but they're 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 together. And so the, the working of God and the theme of God's redemption, His story is going from book to book to book as this plan of redemption is slowly like a flower, slowly breaking the soil and, and growing. And it's not going to come into fruition until we get into the Gospels and then we see this thing blow open and the bud come open and we see the beauty of of this story of redemption and its fullness in christ but we see this shadow begin to form that's going to point to which jesus will be the object of that shadow and and so this story of redemption and in the same way god is still working a story in all of our lives he's not done with us he's not done with his story and rest assured he has a plan and he is accomplishing it there's no open theism in this book This is God has a plan and he is accomplishing it. And so as people are increasing great greatly in Egypt and this is the fulfillment of several promises. So if you look down to verse chapter one, verse six, let me refer back to Genesis 15. If you're taking notes, you might write Genesis 15, 13 through 14. And this is the prophecy God gave Abraham regarding his children. He said, I'm going to give you descendants, even though you don't have a kid, I'm going to give you a kid and your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars of the sky and so this is the fulfillment of, of this promise in Genesis 15. It says that the Lord said to Abraham, to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. That's, that's Egypt. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. So again, it's been 430 years and they've been in that circumstance. So that prophecy has, is being and is, is in the process of being fulfilled but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards, they will come out with great possession. So there's three things mentioned in the God's covenant with Abraham and in this prophecy here. God's promises to Abraham are fulfilled. The first one is that his descendants would be multiplied. They've gone from 70 to 600,000 fighting men. If every one of those fighting men had a wife and a couple kids, then you're talking about easily 2 million, 2.5 million people. Easily. Easily, two million, over two million people. So that God has blessed them and that has been fulfilled. They have increased to the point where they have filled the land. And I think that is a figurative description that they have increased greatly. They have multiplied and grown strong, exceedingly strong, so that they have filled the land. And then in verse eight, now there arose a new king over egypt who did not know joseph and he came he said to his people behold the people of israel are too many and too mighty for us come let us deal shrewdly with them and lest they multiply and if war breaks out they join our enemies and fight against us and escape our land so he's worried about them fighting against them and escaping the land so what's happened here? Is according to history, we know that there was a pharaoh, uh, there's several dynasties of pharaohs, but there was a group of invaders known as shepherd kings coming probably from Assyria, kind of um, coming from the east, and they traveled down and they overtook Egypt in a time of weakness where Egypt wasn't as strong as it had been before. They overtook Egypt and they were known as the Hyksos, Hyksos H-Y-K-O-S, the Hyksos. And these pharaohs, the Hyksos, the shepherd kings, um, they they ruled over Egypt, so it was another dynasty of pharaohs ruling over Egypt for a period of time. And these guys were pretty pretty mean folks. And clearly, they would not have known Joseph, even though he was the right hand of Pharaoh. They wouldn't have. They maybe knew knew about him, but they could care less what the last dynasty of the people they have just overthrown who they liked and who they didn't like. And so they had no affinity for the Israelites, but they oppressed them, and they oppressed them and controlled them, and they put they made them. Uh, they, they put them in slavery, and so they, they made them serve as workers to help them build different things. Well, eventually, the Hyksos were overthrown, and they were run out of Egypt. And another dynasty comes along, and it's the 18th dynasty, which is where I think that this is taking place. And in the 18th dynasty, they were afraid of a couple things happening. They did not want the Israelites, being such a large group, If if they were attacked from the north, just under the Mediterranean Sea, they could join that... Attacking army and they would clearly easily overthrow the Egyptian people. Even though Egypt had the most powerful military on the earth at the time, they had military advancements that were far beyond anybody else at this point. They had invented the compound bow that was able to pierce armor, and they also had chariots, which came with the Hyksos. um, And these chariots were able; they were able to fight and not just you know, shooting an arrow on a horseback as opposed to in a chariot that's rolling is a different game, right? And so they had an, a level of power. They would have blades sticking out of the wheels on the sides of the chariot. And as they would go through crowds, they were just cutting people down left and right. I mean, they were powerful, fearsome, war-capable army. And so, th- but they, nonetheless, they're not foolish. And there's a point where you could still be beat because of numbers and so they made sure they oppressed and they beat down the israelite people and they also did not want to lose their free labor they had these people enslaved the last thing they want is for them to escape and go out and they lose this free labor that they have so they oppressed them severely but then lastly we understand that that god begins to work and deliverance comes and that leads us to the next chapter chapter two Chapter two. See if there's any other thoughts I want to give you in here. Uh, one more uh, thing I want to note for you in chapter 11, verse eleven, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, and they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Um, I-, I mentioned this last week, but that's one of the reasons why people misdiagnose uh, or misplace the Exodus later. Under Ramses, who served, he was the pharaoh about 1200 B.C. you got to listen to the sermon last week if you want to get all this. But i am just throw this out there. I just want you to plant this in your head so that if somebody challenges you with this point later on, you can go, I know some, there's something about that. And you can come ask me while I help you figure it out. All right, so Ramses, uh, they assume, well, Ramses must have been the pharaoh because there's a city la- named after him. Well, that doesn't mean anything. That could have been changed later. They could have taken a city and they changed the name later to Ramses because people knew that's what the name of that city is now. So they would recognize this geographical place. Could it be? Uh, it could have been named that before Ramses was ever born. Or it would have been, um, and uh, and he was named with a similar name that refers to the god Ra. There's a couple different logical explanations, but you cannot base the whole dating of the Exodus based upon the fact that there was just one city that happens to have the same name as a pharaoh. You understand? Okay. And so that's what liberals do. They look for a way to liberal scholars to misrepresent all of scripture and they hang it on something that is not very strong of an argument so ramses forced cruelty mid and so uh as passage goes on affliction is going to come on them three things happen in this affliction another thing to note Forced labor is the first part of the affliction. They're forced into labor. And then that doesn't work to suppress the population. The first thing is, let's oppress them and let's suppress them and let's make life really difficult for them. And that way they won't multiply as fast. And what happens is they continue to multiply faster and stronger. And so they say, we know what? We don't want to just have forced um, labor. In verse 13, they begin forced labor with a level of cruelty. It's described as ruthless, ruthless uh, work. And cruel work as they are suppressed and oppressed as slaves. And then lastly, the last way of, of controlling this population is by ordering the midwives to kill the newborn males. So what was going on there is they were saying to the midwives that when they, and they... There's only two midwives mentioned. Now, this is a large group of people, so we don't know if they were over the other midwives or just two that they pulled out to... Highlight, or clearly they could not help all of the women in the whole nation. If there was only two of them, that would be one of the reasons why they never got around to getting there before they had the kids. But they would uh, use gravity, hence the birth stool. They were using gravity to deliver the baby. Nonetheless, they would have the child, and what they said, they refused to kill the boys. And so they just told the Pharaoh. And we don't know if this is a little white lie or if this is just, it just really is true. There's an element where we think this, there's some truth to what they're saying, it's not a complete stretch. But the Egyptian women, I mean, the Hebrew women were pretty tough. And so they would have their kids. And then they, you know, by the time they got there, what they reported is that um, everything was done and, and, and they were unable to, to fulfill the Pharaoh's orders. But the key phrase is in verse 20, and it says, uh, verse 17, The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them and so God dw- dealt well with the midwives um we don't have time to get into big this would be because of what is going on in our nation right now it would be worth the whole sermon a whole series to deal with the issue of abortion and that's clearly what's going on here this is what's happening now it was a uh They were wanting to kill the babies after they were born, but what's the difference? There is no longer a debate regarding abortion anymore in our country about when life begins. That was the debate 10, 15, 20 years ago, but science has proven again and again and again and again, and with new technologies and the ability to look at a child in 3D, sonograms, and all the incredible stuff they can do, that very early in a child's development, an infant's development in utero, they, their nerve endings are, are, are all fill, uh, formed and they're able to clearly feel pain and retract when something like a needle comes in to be able to check and see if they have some kind of um, biological issue, genetic issue. They retract, they pull back, they hide from it, they, don't, they get, get away from the needle. And yet we want to justify in our nation the killing and the murder and the pulling apart and selling of the parts of babies. I don't know if you've seen any of the videos. By God's grace, I'm so thankful that some people snuck in there and have recorded and documented what has been going on for decades, and people have been turning the eye, turning their ear to it, not wanting to look at it. I don't want to, eh, it's just, look, it's not my place to tell somebody else what they can do with their body. It's not my place to tell somebody whatever. So you, you don't mind somebody getting murdered. You just don't want to, you're just not willing to pull the trigger. So basically, you're saying you can pull the trigger, but I'm just gonna I'm just gonna turn my back and I'm just gonna pretend I don't see anything. It's interesting. There were some interviews um, by a guy. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the documentary. Um, Ray Comfort did it. I think it was 360 or something like that. And he asked the people he asked people um, questions about World War II and the Holocaust. And and one of the things that happened horrific uh, during the Holocaust is they would they would kill Germans would kill Jews. They just execution soldiers, they, they would have them dig their grave. They would line them up, and they would go down the line, and they would kill them. And They said, "Would you, if you were told by um, a, by a soldier, they put you there and they gave you the gun? They said, I want you to kill these people. Would you pull the trigger?'" And they said, "No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that." They said, "Okay," and they, they said, oh, "We're going to shoot you if you don't do this. We're going we're to shoot you." And they said, "No, I wouldn't do that. And they said, "Would you? Um, would you drive the bulldozer to bury them, um, knowing that many of them are still alive? They're not." dead would you be willing to bury people alive um if they held a gun to your head would you would you do that and they said many of the people probably two-thirds of them said yeah i I would do that and their justification was look i can't change the outcome they're going to die anyway there's nothing i can do but this way i can save my life and it's really and they so in other words it's like i wouldn't i would not directly end a person's life but i don't mind as long as there's dirt and a bulldozer between me and their life then i'm all right you see the difference there And it is no different the way we look at abortion in our country. Well, I would never do that, but it's not my place to tell somebody else what to do. It is your place as a person created in the image of God to defend other image bearers in utero and out of utero, old or young, common, perfect, normal people or people that are not normal and have disabilities, whatever. It is our call by God to defend people who are image bearers of God, to defend everybody. Now, understand this, in this room, my understanding is, I don't know about this room, but in our society, they say that it's, some have estimated that one-third of women in our country have had an abortion. I doubt that that's the statistic is true in this room, but it is not beyond the realm of possibility that somebody in this room has, directly or indirectly, been involved in an abortion. I'm not here to drop condemnation on you. There was a lady Uh, at a church in Mississippi that sat in my office and her two college girls were in our college ministry. In fact, one of them, we laid hands on and prayed for Trey and Megan and they're serving God in Northern India right now with the International Mission Board. But um, they're supposed to be a third child in their family and their mom had had an abortion. And she came and talked to me and she was involved in ministries to help women make better decisions on that and she made a decision based on the information she had at the moment it was a wrong decision she regrets it tremendously and her life began to go down and plummet and then she met jesus and god began to change her life and I, I don't want anybody to go out of here feeling condemned or hated or despised or guilty man god can set you free do not cower if that was your past god can redeem that God can fix that. God can change and transform. He can't undo what happened, but God can use that for his glory. So I don't want any, you know, sense any condemnation. We have got to, as the people of God, do a far better job, not just preaching against something, but, but helping these ministries that help women make better decisions, advocating for adoption. If people don't want them, we'll take them. We'll take him. We need to be a people that we, look, we'll adopt. We'll find somebody to take the baby. I know people that are waiting for adoption, and they don't have the money for it. We'll take the kid. We can find somebody that will be glad to raise that child. But do not end that child's life. And God blessed these women because of this. Rosaria Butterfield is a lady... um, Unbelievable testimony. Former lesbian came to faith in Christ and then realized that that lifestyle was not congruent with um, being a follower of Jesus. Um, She didn't have a problem coming to Jesus like that, and then she realized, oh, I guess I'm not supposed to be, and then she began to war with her identity, and she found freedom in Christ, and God delivered, now she's actually a pastor's wife, and she went from being this stereotypical liberal with the defense of, you know, defending Planned Parenthood, and all that stuff, and and women's rights, and all this, to working through that, and she's also an educator, by the way, so she's really smart, Um, and not that all educators are smart, but she is really smart, Uh, most of them are educated beyond their intelligence but that's another story. But anyway, she's incredibly smart and so she um she as she worked through this, she said that she came to the conclusion based upon Psalms chapter uh, Psalms 102. So one day she during a worship service, we sang Psalms 102. And it hit me between the eyes. Here was the line of my undoing. And this is what it says, Psalms 102 verse 18. In peoples and In peoples yet uncreated shall praise and magnify the lord and peoples yet uncreated shall praise and magnify the lord i got it abortion is not a right or an entitlement abortion steals praise from god by denying image bearers the opportunity to live through and for him abortion despises and attacks and destroys the image of god yes children must be protected from abuse some people say well it's better to abort them than to have them born into an abusive circumstance or situation or into poverty and so you realize that the lady that set up the planned parenthood put them in black communities to control the population most of the planned parenthood places are in poor places or in black communities do we not see what's going on here Talk about racism and evil. And we allow it. We cannot allow this to go on. We have got to call our representatives. If you want to get political, this is something to get political about. Make a phone call. Pray fast. Be gracious. Be loving. Be kind. Be gentle. But do not be unheard on this. Abortion steals praise from God by denying image bearers the opportunity to live Through and for him, abortion despises and attacks and destroys the image of God. Yes, children must be protected from abuse, but abortion does not accomplish this. The devil comes to kill and to steal and to destroy. And we do not want to play on his team. And so we want to fight. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life. That's a sermon for another day. I just want to give you that thought. Moving on, Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. The next part of this is going to cover 80 years where God is working behind the scenes, sovereignly orchestrating His plan of deliverance. Hence that last point I had on that last slide. Deliverance will come. So in chapter 2, it says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took him and and put him in a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, bitumen and pitch. So she covers it, coats it with bitumen and pitch, which is like tar, makes it waterproof, okay? Um, And so she waterproofs this basket. She puts the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done. So Miriam, his sister, what's going on here is uh, Levi, uh, somebody in the family of Levi, a man and a woman, they in that tribe, they marry and they conceive and they bear a child. Now, Miriam is probably about 15 years old. So they've been married for about 15 years. So verse one begins 15 years later. Verse two, the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was fine or beautiful child just looking at the child just knew this is an incredibly beautiful child and god has a plan for this child it's that's the thing about every wanted and unwanted um anticipated and unanticipated birth regardless of the circumstance there is so much potential in a child of what god might do only heaven knows what god will do through this image bearer and how he will declare his glory through their life and she held this child and she knew she could not obey the command of pharaoh that all the peoples egyptians and hebrews would take their the the take the hebrew boys and throw them into the nile river she would not do that and so she comes up with a plan and they make a basket at three months he's too loud uh and crying to hide him anymore he's getting strong his lungs are are are, are, you know strengthened enough to where evidently he was uh, he was he was loud and so um, she makes this little basket, and she places him. And, and think about this imagery. Um, the Nile River is not just, it's not a, like a lazy river at, you know, the water park, okay? There's like creatures like hippos and Nile crocodiles, which are very large reptiles with very big teeth that could eat people. And, you know, a baby's a snack. I mean, not a big deal. And, and so she takes this, and they place it in the high reeds, which is to say that it's in a somewhat of a safe, secure and it seems that she's very strategic with where she places this child and and partially obedient mind you to the pharaoh's command because he said he did say cast your children into the water and so you know he's he's just taking and she's placing the baby in a basket in the river waterproof and then placing it where pharaoh's daughter and some of the egyptians would be in hopes that somehow god would do something Takes this child, places it out of her control. Miriam's watching to report back what happens, and then waits. Realize God is setting up to deliver his people from slavery. And in a time of, after 400 years of oppression and hopelessness and desperation, I mean, you know, it's hard enough for us to trust God today or this week, or this year, or this month, or this year, or in our lifetime. But imagine trusting God in the midst of oppression and then telling your kids to trust God with their generation and their kids' kids and their kids' kids, that they would faithfully trust God when He doesn't answer in their lifetime and continue to be faithful to believe that God will somehow show up and deliver us. And to pass that. And then when He finally shows up to start working a plan, the answer is an infant, helpless, loud, and now in a basket, sitting in the river, in danger. And that's God's plan. Well, sister stood a distance to know what would be done to him. And now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. and She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women, and she took it. Raised, I, I believe that the pharaoh that, that called the babies to be destroyed, who was an evil, wicked, powerful pharaoh, Moses I, he reigned from 1539 to 1514 B.C., Remember, some of you guys were telling me last week, he's like, I get confused with the B.C. because it's going, it's dating backwards. So the number's going down as we move forward in B.C., um, anticipating the coming of Christ. 1539 to four, 1514 B.C., Tutmosis I, and he had a daughter, and her name was Hachitsip. And, and she was a tough girl, Hachitsip. In fact, she, uh, she did marry, but um, my best understanding is she was unable to have children, and, uh, and so being the daughter of the Pharaoh, not the wife of Pharaoh, but the daughter of Pharaoh, she's bathing and she sees this basket. And she sends one of her servants to go get it and had would have been a pretty powerful girl because she, her, her weak husband, um, she basically reigned in his place for a period there, there, um, their time overlaps. And she's one of the few, um, only to my knowledge, uh, wife of a Pharaoh, arguably a Pharaoh that has an enormous burial place built, a whole temple built to Hachitsip that's there in Egypt. To this day, you can go and see it if ISIS hasn't blown it up yet, and, um, and you can see what it looks like, and it's, it's magnificent. You go search on Google Images, you can see Hachitsip's palace. In fact, there's even some pictures of her mummy, um, which is she doesn't look near what she used to, but, um, but you can see her. So she ruled from 1501 to 1479 B.C. And her husband, Tutmosis II, rules 1514 to 1501 B.C. And she goes and she hears this baby crying. Now, that basket was not uncommon to see a basket floating down the Nile. Sometimes they would put offerings in the baskets and they would float them out across the Nile to the other side where the burial places were. And sometimes they would take bodies of dead loved ones and they would push them out in into the uh Nile River um that they would begin their passageway to the other side, to the place of the dead. And that was a, their way of kind of, that was their burial. And so it was not uncommon, but was different. Something was different about this basket. It was a really loud basket. So it's crying. And so clearly there's a problem going on here. And so she sends one of her servants that's checking the water to make sure riffraff don't get near her and to make sure hippos and crocodiles aren't near. And goats. and she gets the basket. She pulls the basket out. And suddenly she sees a child and recognizes this is not one of the Egyptian babies. She opens it and saw, behold, there was a baby crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? What a brilliant idea. Miriam, smart little girl. Okay, she's, hey, do you want me to go get one of the Hebrew women that can nurse the kid? Yeah, it's a great idea. And she goes and gets Moses' mother. And so Moses' mother is going to get paid to take care of this child until the child is weaned. And so I will pay you, take the child away, nurse him for me, and I will pay you your, your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Pharaohs, Yeah. And so when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses or Moshe because she said, I drew him out of the water. That's a play on a word that has to do with water. And that was the, the name. Probably, likely, what would happen is the one of the parents' names would be tacked onto that. So likely his name in Egypt would have been not just been Moses, but Hat Moses after his mother, adopted mother, Hat Shitsip. So Hat Moses, possibly. Moses in the house of Pharaoh would have had the best education that you could possibly have. He would have instruction in theology, astronomy, medicine, mathematics, military strategy, um, public speaking, even though people say, well, he couldn't talk. I don't know about that. I mean, he grew up in Pharaoh's house. I think he probably had some classes on that. He probably was a pretty good um, speaker. And the latest, uh, he had the latest knowledge in every field of learning. But then one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to the people, his people, and he looked on their Burdens. It means that he looked on and he watched what was going on with his people with incredible emotion. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So Moses has this sense of justice well up in him. And he thinks, he knows instinctively, this is wrong. This is unjust. And in that moment, he takes matters into his own hands. He looks this way and that and seeing no one, he strikes down. He struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Literally, in the language here, it's saying, with one blow. I mean, just one shot, he killed him. I mean, he he was evidently he knew how to do a little hand-to-hand combat, Moses. And so he, you know, he put some move on him and the guy's dead. And then he went um he went and he hit him in the sand, and he went out the next day. Behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he asked, what are you, a prince or judge over us? Did you mean to kill? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptians? And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. And then when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. So word is spread. Moses is a murderer. And so the deliverer is now a murderer. That kind of messes up God's plans, doesn't it? And it says Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by the wall, by the well. And now the prince of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Shepherds came and drove them away and Moses stood up and he saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, uh, Raul, which means friend of God, he said. How is it that you've come home so soon? Egyptian deliver, they said, Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And even drew water for us and watered our flock. And he said, his daughters, well, where is he? Why have you left this man? Call him that he may make bread with us. Moses was content to dwell with this man and gave uh, he who gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. And he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many years, we're talking about 40 to 80 years, the king of Egypt died. Verse 23, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their their cry of rescue and slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. I'm just going to, I don't have time to get into all the details of this. Uh, Interestingly enough, we will be talking about this in our life groups this week. So if you want to unpack this more and talk through it, you can do this in life group. Big thing is trusting God in the desert. That's the question for you. I want to give you a quick map and then a couple final thoughts and we're done. Uh, Ramses is here. Pithom is here. This is the... Goshen, which is where the Hebrews would have lived. And this is the Nile River. This is the Red Sea down here. This is the Gulf of Aqaba. This is called the Sinai Peninsula. And so he travels over through the Sinai Peninsula, past the Gulf of Aqaba to this land right here, which is known as the Land of Midian. The Land of Midian. And uh, there he spends 80 years of his life. 80 years in obscurity. 80 years, 40 more years from when he... Fled Egypt, was probably about 40 when he murdered. Forty more years go by, 80 years old, and he's in this land. A couple thoughts for you. A couple thoughts. God hears and God knows. God hears and God knows. Verse 24. God hears their groaning, heard. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God knew. You cry out to God. And we ask God to work, and we ask God to move, and we ask God, and it seems like days and weeks and months, maybe even years go by, and God doesn't show up the way that we think He's supposed to. I mean, we're talking about 400 years have gone by, and then from the beginning of the story, and then there's there's 15 years from when the couple gets married and has Moses, and then there's another 40 years where they're waiting to see what God's going to do, and then he gets hot-headed and he kills somebody and throws the whole plan off, and now he's in the wilderness for 40 more years, so now we're, we're up to 500 years approximately. has gone by since the people entered into Egypt, and still delivery has not come. And it looks absolutely hopeless and helpless. And I want you to know that when you're in the desert, don't give up to despair. Don't become hopeless. Don't think, just because you don't see what God is doing, understand. And I don't have time to get into all the details, but there is so much to this story that God has been doing and working behind the scenes that it is unbelievable. I mean, it is no mistake that he ends up in the land of Midian with a guy that's actually a descendant related because of sin in Abraham's life, nonetheless, related to Abraham. So he knew the one true God. And God raises this guy up that's going to be a shelter for Moses so he can grow up in his household and gain strength and learn. And over 40 years, he wanders the Sinai Peninsula with a flock of sheep in preparation for God to have him wandering the Sinai Peninsula in the land of Midian with 2.5 million people in a couple years. He knew where the water holes were. He knew where the best paths were. He knew where the places you could lead and in the desert where there would be a little bit of grass where the, the, the herds could feed. All of that time, God's working behind the scenes. Paul Miller, in a book, uh, Praying Life, he says this, to live in the Father's story, you need to remember three things. Don't demand that the story goes your way. We understand that there's a story God's writing, and he's working, and we need to pray, and we need to trust God. But three things you need to know. Number one, don't demand for God to do things your way. Don't demand that the story goes your way. Number two, look for the storyteller. Look for his hand. And then pray in light of what you are seeing. In other words, develop an eye to see what God is doing. God is working, we just don't see it because we don't look for it, because we're not asking for it. You understand that? When you pray, you don't get God, you don't force God to do something. When you pray, you invite yourself into the story that God is already working, and you begin to see what He has already been doing. Prayer attunes our hearts and our minds to begin to see what God is doing. And so we realize all along God has heard, God has seen, God is watching, God's heart is moved. And we begin to see little things that God is doing and that causes us to hope and to continue to hope. Number three, stay in the story. And don't shut down when things don't go your way. Don't give up, don't throw them in the towel, don't stop trusting God. In the desert, the desert becomes the window to the heart of God where he finally gets our attention because he's the only game in town. That's what Paul Miller says. The desert is the place where God finally shuts out all the other distractions. We're so desperate that he's the only hope and we've tried everything else and it hasn't worked. And so now we're stuck. We're backed into a corner and we have no other place to look except for Jesus. And that's the place we should start. And so learn, if you want to work through the desert of despair. If you want to fight through the desert of despair, we need to be people of prayer and know that God hears and that God knows the circumstances. And God is working. Final thought. Hebrew people have, had been born into bondage and slavery. They were unable to deliver themselves. And the army of Egypt was the most powerful in the world with the most advanced weaponry of the day, as already mentioned. But in the midst of that, God heard their prayers and He was preparing to deliver them. In the same way you have been born into slavery. You, you, you were born dead in your trespasses and sins. You're stuck. You don't sin because you just you just made a mistake. You sin because you're a sinner born into slavery and you do what you have been born to do, and that is bent away from God and the ways of God to live for yourself and to do what you want and to do whatever you think is going to save you, give you hope, whatever functional savior you want to run after. That's the way we are all born in slavery. But I want you to understand that God has sent a deliverer who's far better than Moses. He's not a murderer. In fact, not only is he not a murderer, he laid his life down so that we can have life. And that's the gospel in Genesis I mean' it's in Exodus chapter one and, and two, that we are born in slavery, but God is working. And the very last thing you need to hear again is that God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. God knew. God knows your circumstances. God is working. To deliver you the question is are we attuning our ears have we repented of our sin and trust in jesus to deliver us from sin and then in our present circumstances are we continuing to rely on god or did we just trust in jesus to get started but now we're going to do everything in our own power you can't save yourself and you cannot deliver yourself and you cannot work out your circumstances apart from trusting in god he is working he has a story that is unfolding your life began with an and and your story as god works your life is continuing Trust God with your story. Let's pray.